So, what is it that you love about being black? That's a great question, Nankina. I love being black because I'm different from everybody else. And the second reason, because black people can do anything they set their minds to. What I like about being black is just freaking amazing. We we are amazing. Every day is a good day for breathing. My black. favorite part about being black is uh, the originality. Love being black because I can put my hair into different shapes and sizes, and nobody can ever tell me how my hair can be. I do like the food. When people say black girl magic, that's for real. That ain't just because because we just want to say that. It's real. We magic. We we are so unique in everything that we know. Go ahead, say it. Please say it. Please say black. Please stay black. Please stay black. Please stay black. I always was black. <laughs> Welcome to season one of the Please Say Black podcast. And this is episode one. And I am talking to Dr. Christina Cleveland, who is the author of the brand new book, God is a Black Woman. Y'all gotta get into it. If you've not purchased this book, buy the book for yourself, buy it for friends, buy it for family members, but get the book, write a review. This book is transformative. And the space that I held with Dr. Christina Cleveland was a true blessing for me. And I hope it's the same thing for the listeners. If you are listening to this episode during the month of March, I encourage you to be a part of the Spring Black Book Exchange. That means if you're Black, you can actually have someone purchase this book for you. And that means if you're not Black, you could be the person who actually purchases the book for a Black person. So sign up. Follow the Anti-Blackness Reader Project and Divesting from Whiteness Instagram to find out more information. Now, during this episode, Dr. Christina Cleveland and I talk about a lot of different things. We spend a lot of time thinking about the holistic Black experience. And what does it mean when we see the sacredness of our Blackness? Furthermore, Dr. Christina Cleveland and I really unpack the kinds of self-compassion we need, the types of Black healing we need in order to manifest communal Black healing. And so I am, again, so blessed to have been able to hold this space with Dr. Cleveland, and I hope that the listeners are as blessed as I was. See you on the other side of the episode. This is your Black History Moment. Not only we are we Black history, but we get to like see what has happened ancestrally, right? So I guess the first question I wanted to ask is, we had some recent, you know, earmark moments. I mean, today, which I didn't think about it when I scheduled this, is the anniversary, you know, Martin Luther King. It's a federal holiday. Um, I'm avoiding the internet because I know it's going to be full of hijinks. <laughs> his words get misaligned with so many agendas and stuff. And then last week we had Maya Angelou, where they're like, mm-hmm. we're going to put... Angela on the quarter. And mm-hmm. I think Black 
have so many dynamic responses to our history. So I just kind of want to start with that. Like, how do you feel about a day like MLK Day? And what do you think it means to us like now in 2022, right, when we're navigating an anti-Black world? What do you think that history means right now? Hmm. That's a big question. (laughs) Well, today, you know, what really resonates with with me, particularly about MLK, but I think the the same could also be said about Maya Angelou, is because of the information age, um, they they seem very human to me. And so today I feel, and one of the things I wrote about on social media today is just how much I really have a love-hate relationship with MLK Jr. Because... For much of his career, he was basically just playing to what white white what white moderates wanted. And if you look to see what the like SLC's Ten Commandments were and stuff, it was a lot of performance, a lot of tone policing, um, that kind of stuff. Just like very um, what what's the word? The politics, like you know, just like just respectability politics. Respectability politics. Yeah, exactly. I was blanking on the word because. I'm in France and in, I'm trying to learn French, um, which means my English is getting a little sketchy. But um, but yeah, respectability politics, right? And so, but you know, I, I'm but but the thing is, is now we know so much more about his life and we know about the transformation that he underwent. And the same could be said for Maya Angelou in her own way. These like very dynamic stories, right? We kind of see the public facing part where they're like these amazing, illuminary international figures, but we. If we look deeper, we get to see they made lots of mistakes and they their some of their efforts didn't really pan out and um and so it, I kind of just can relate to them a lot and that's the best thing I like about black history is that there's no one of us that is like this hero. We're all heroes, and I think it's whiteness that wants us to think that there's an individual hero that 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 we need another MLK. No, we don't. We're all MLKs. We don't need another Toni Morrison. We're all Toni Morrisons. We're all poets. We're all writers. We're all artists. Um, and we all have it within us to, to, to have a dynamic life, which to me just means a life of healing, where we look back and we're like, you know, I'm a little more healed than I was last year. I'm a little more free than I was last year. I'm a little more loving towards myself, my Blackness, others. Yeah. It's so funny. I was talking to my dad last night and, you know, lots of thoughts. Actually, I was critiquing the Biden administration and I was just like, you know what? It ain't it. This ain't it. Whatever this is. <laughs> it was right. never going to be it. <laughs> so, I mean, the, and I, the U.S. presidency you know, as an institution is anti-Black. Yeah. And is, as is the U.S. vice presidency. It doesn't matter who's in the desk. The institution is anti-Black. Yeah. And so my dad is a baby boomer, right? And so you know, he's like, but what else are we going to have? And I was like, I don't know, (laughs) like the kind of anarchy that leads to true freedom and liberation. Again, this is not it. And what was interesting is my dad said something like, we don't have anyone to lead us. We don't have, we don't have a Malcolm X. We don't have an MLK. And like, I like to speak to that thing you just mentioned about, we are all those things. I told my dad, like, I don't think we need to keep thinking that it's one person. And so I'm so glad you said that because I mean, and the truth of the matter too, is like the, the the African diaspora is like one of the most diverse groups of. Yeah. It's not even, it's not even America centric. Yeah. Like that 
there's just one voice and one person, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. I do think there can be like one super agenda and that is the liberation of all like, you know, black peoples globally. Mm-hmm. But this idea of the individual is again, really much close to white supremacy and white culture. That one person, yeah. that one individual mm-hmm. has the authority, has the power to move us. And so I'm glad you said that. Yeah. And, and the media works really differently now too. Right. I mean, they were I mean, they weren't even the only leaders of the civil rights movement. (laughs) There were thousands of leaders. And I love how, like, you know, the SNCC leaders like kind of hated MLK. You know, they called him the Lord because they thought he was they thought that he thought he was better than all of them, you know. And so, like, there was now there's so much more information out there and there's so many more people who have platforms. So it looks like there isn't one clear leader, but that's. That's how it was back then, too. I think about these moments that, you know, there's this conversation and I read it in one of the books that I read simultaneously at one time. I'm always reading like six books where (laughs) Rosa has to let him know, right? Like, you know, you can do this, right? And you can be the voice of the people. And Dr. King is like, well, I'm just a preacher. You know what I'm saying? And so I think people also forget that, that there was a, there was a, there was a transfer of power. And I'm not going to, I don't know if, well, I think it does matter that we talk about that. But for me as a Black woman, a lot of what I see now kind of makes me think about these moments where we decided whose story matters the most, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than looking at her name, I think her name was Claudette and she was 15 and she was a teenage mm-hmm. mother. And they're like lighter skinned. And she, she was, was darker skinned, skinned exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so like the baton keeps getting passed to who's going to be acceptable, who's going to be pliant, who's mm-hmm. going to be, right? And so I think mm-hmm. part of what we have to do as a people is divorce ourselves from that too. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. This idea that only one mm-hmm. person has the story and especially it's so rooted in black maleness too right totally black maleness and also any sort of conformative to the white patriarchal standard whether that's education skin color body size resume the way you talk i mean yeah yeah we're getting free though yeah we are right yeah and also you know i went uh, especially earlier in my journey I read a lot of Palestinian theology actually Palestinian Jewish Christian and Muslim theology because there's so many I mean Palestine is just so diverse in terms of religion and what I really like about it is you know I think the Palestinians who are doing resistance work in a lot of ways can relate to the black struggle because they've been subjugated by empire for so long and the systems of domination and so it's just been really powerful for me to read a lot of theology that's basically mustard seed theology. They're like the remnant, the outsiders, that's always going to be the force. Like the whole idea that you need all of society on your side, that you need public consensus to be behind you is a is a white supremacist idea. You don't need that. Oh my gosh. You just need the the powerful remnant who believe and who are willing to put to do the work, you know? And so it's just, it's been really, it was, it has been really powerful for me to read just like years and years and years of theology from that perspective where it's like, we're not trying to, we're not trying to be for everyone. Yeah. 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 And I even think to a certain extent, 
and so much of how I process things happens systemically, institutionally, right? And something mm-hmm. that I learned two years ago that really kind of like pivoted me from that idea that we need this 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 large amount of consensus is when we think about something like the fact that initially all the hospitals weren't signed up for people not smoking in them. It was like Mm -hmm. three hospitals in one area that all basically made a decision like, hey, people can't smoke in our hospitals and that and in that particular region and that created a footprint, right? Really appreciated learning. Because I do think to your point, we're taught that there has to be this false, cons- and it's not even real consensus, it's a false Mm-mm. consensus. Totally. Like when, like when everyone got excited about, um, when everyone got excited about how many white people were engaged after George Floyd, I was like, this is going to last about a minute. And then look what happened, right? So, you know, it's like, yeah, we don't, we don't need that. We don't need everybody to join. It's, it's in everybody's best interest to join for their own liberation but we don't need them. And I know for a long time in my early career, I literally thought that white people were like the secret weapon. You just got to get white people to get on board. <laughs> and that's a, that's very much an MLK legacy, early MLK, not late MLK. Now I'm about to get assassinated MLK because that's when he was radical. But early MLK was all about, you know, let's convince the white moderates that black people are human and we actually don't need to be arguing for our humanity. And- <laughs> We're not, <laughs> this is good and this is organic. And I struggle with that a lot, right? I struggle with that mm. as someone who, you know, um, who's constantly evolving, right? Mm. You know, I, I, I tell people a lot, 2016 is when I realized how much in, internalized self-hatred I had. 2016, mm. I realized how much of how I saw myself how much of how I evaluated things, assessed things, performed things was really shaped by white supremacy culture and whiteness, right? And so I always tell people 2016 is is when I decided to start tapping out. And my own personal struggle is that it takes so long to start to realize what we've internalized, right? So like, that's mm-hmm. the first, that's a major like wall you hit because you're like, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. I believe some of this too. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, even when I say it, I, I say it's horrible to say this, but if we woke up tomorrow and all the white people disappeared, right, white mm-hmm. supremacy, anti-blackness is still present. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's just a horrible thing to have to chew, Christina, mm-hmm. that even without mm-hmm. them, right? because there are certain people mm-hmm. who truly feel like, well, OK, if we just get rid of all the white people. Everything is solved. No, mm-hmm. this Yes, it is so baked in. And so Mm -hmm. I think one, recognizing what I had internalized was really hard. Mm -hmm. And two, I still think about where the ways in which I have conversations with non-Black folks. How do I have conversations with white people that don't center them, that don't lend themselves to what you said about like, we need you to, Mm -hmm. to give us our humanity when really we need to see those things in ourselves, right? And so that's a journey, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm thankful for it, but I just want to name that it's a hard one to process and Mm -hmm. continuously. Um, I think Mm -hmm. that's why the book is so amazing. Okay. So we're still early in 2022, right? Um, I don't do resolutions because that seems like some white people shit, but (laughs) (laughs) the calendar 
with white people shit. This linear time project, I ain't here for it. But, you know, I mean, usually at the beginning of the year gives us an opportunity to get momentum, right? So do you have a mm-hmm. practice at the top of the new year that inspires you? That you, you know, mm-hmm. like some people pick a word or a theme. Do you have mm-hmm. any of those things that mm-hmm. kind of give you some direction and encouragement at the top of the year? No, I don't have anything that coordinates with the with the calendar. I'm I'm a I'm a integration's really important to me and spiritual integration just comes really naturally to me. I often don't even think about it. There's a practice I've been doing since early November that I'm carrying into the year. Um, but it doesn't have anything it has more to do with my book launch coming out and wanting to be as free from like white capitalistic patriarchal ideas of success as possible. And so that's what it's about. So usually any practice I have or ritual is usually around something that's happening in my life as opposed to a calendar. So I think I can relate to you in the sense I didn't really, I don't really have a tradition of New Year's resolutions or anything like that. But I definitely like a, like many Black women have historically, you know, have a tradition of um, living holistically, you know, like what does it look like for my whole life to be in alignment with what I, with, with the freest way I can possibly be. So that and feels I mean, very Black woman. Yeah. And one of the things I told myself, and then I told other people who listen or pay attention, is we don't need resolution as much as we need resolve, right? Mm-hmm. There are so many things that we've committed to in the past. And mm-hmm. for me, one of the things that I'm really trying to both reflect on and build on is how do I get more in alignment, right? values, beliefs, and what is my body doing? Like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie to you, Christina. I say that I value joy and, and rest, but I'm still sh- trying to figure out how to create a practice for that, right? Of course, yeah, and of course. That is personal and consistent for me and, and is like rhythmic, right? So that's mm-hmm. another thing that I really have been thinking about is mm-hmm. no one needs to add a whole shit ton of things to the list of things they do, right? And it actually keeps us discombobulated, I think, because then mm-hmm. you're like, oh, I need to focus on this new skill set. And then you mm-hmm. feel like a failure about the one thing you didn't do. And then you mm-hmm. feel like a failure about this new thing you added to your life. Mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and it can just handicap us um so yeah. anyway mm-hmm. I appreciate this idea that the rhythms and having that was was a personal alignment it's time for the blackest thing made it out the neighborhood made it to the pros head shoulders knees toes it's the triple crown something you don't know Okay. Okay. First of all, I just realized earlier I cut you off when I got excited about the George Floyd stuff. So I just want to apologize for that. I'm realizing I cut you off. I'm so sorry. I'm not trying to silence another black woman. Um, What's the blackest thing I've done this week? Twist my hair, do a twist out. (laughs) Probably. Um, yeah, that's probably the black I mean, I also went to the swap meet. Okay. The French swap meet. Well, a French, a French version of it. But, you know, I was out there. There's a lot of Africans out there, too, which is great. A lot of Africans and then a lot of, like, um, East, East European, the immigrant community, basically, whether it's East European or African. So, yeah. 
<laughs> What's the blackest thing you've done this week? The blackest thing I've done this week. So I made my New Year's Eve uh, beans way after New Year's mm, Eve. Okay. Like black eyed peas beans? You know, as long as it was a bean. Okay. <laughs> so the blackest thing I've done this week is eat cabbage and my beans and corn. That's, 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 that's <laughs> legit black. <laughs> Awesome. That's awesome. That's that was vegan too. Huh? Was that vegan too? It was definitely vegetarian. No. Oh, not I mean, vegan. Not the way I made it though, Christine. Not like, the way you cooked it. Okay. <laughs> so you didn't mention the ham hock that was in there too. <laughs> What'd you cook it with? Uh, chicken wings. Oh. Oh. Okay. That's great. I was thinking smoked sausage, but okay. Yeah. Great. There's, there's chicken wings. There's way no pond there was. So there's smoked sausage like cut up. So I'm not there awesome. yet. Okay. I'm not there yet. No, it's great. That sounds that sounds wonderful. I know that there are a lot of titles that people probably give you. I mean, hmm. Rebel Browser is probably one. <laughs> <laughs> that that tracks, yes. Preacher. Uh, I mean, Professor, you've worn a lot of hats. You know, for me, you have definitely been my personal conduit of the bl- of black fi- fi- femininity, of the sacredness. Um, mm. So that's, but are there any titles that are more aligned with where you are? Like, what do you call yourself, Christina? Mm, that's a really good question. <sighs> Sacred. You know, that's the hat I've been trying to wear so much. The hat that I've been really trying to wear for myself because the more I hold myself that way, the more I hold others that way. And kind of to your point about how Black women don't really need more resolutions and also to your earlier point about how much internalized white supremacy we still carry and how this journey of liberation is a constant reckoning with the fact that there's still more in us, that there's still more work to be done. And so I think the the white supremacist impulse is to add a resolution to that as opposed to add self-compassion to that. Keep self-compassion on myself and keep rest on myself. And so this the this thinking of myself as sacred, I've I've gotten into this habit of saying over and over again, oh, I'm too sacred for that. I'm just too, you know, just whatever. Whether it's like, I mean, depending on my mood, right? So it could just be a conversation with somebody where I'm like, you know what, I'm not gonna answer that call because I'm too sacred for that right now, you know. But it also could just be like I'm in line at the store and I'm like, I'm too sacred to be in line. <laughs> you know what I mean? like, <laughs> Um, but so I think that's something that's really powerful for me. Um, I've been spending a lot of time here in France connecting, um, with people who uh, practice avant-garde spirituality that's just really outside the, the bounds. And so, you know, the term witch or the term, um, like conjurer, like some of those terms are more resonant with me now because I'm mixing so many different forms of spirituality and just making making a spirituality that feels native to me and life-giving to me. So that's one thing. Um, and then I'd say creator as opposed to being like a professor or a thinker or a writer, but just someone who's just out there creating all sorts of things. Some of it writing, some of it art, some of it ideas. Just creator. <laughs> so appreciate that. And... As someone who is decolonizing their lives, you know, taking, I will say this, taking back things that have been taken away, rather that's physical things, but even like um, how we process, you know, like for 
example, one of the biggest things that occurred for me last year really is this reckoning with linear time, right? I had to recognize- like, It's not a thing. thing. <laughs> <laughs> People got up boats with watches and was like, hey, y'all, where's this watch? I mean, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but do you know what I'm saying? Like, Basically, so- it's a conspiracy from Apple <laughs> to sell more, wa- sell more gadgets. Like- <laughs> So then it's like, okay, I'm on Pingham time. People, the global majority about God as a black woman is it in some ways it lets us take back that divinity, that wholeness. Mm-hmm. I don't even think we realize has been taken away from us. Yeah, right? our authority. Yeah, our authority. Yeah. Right? Yeah, our uh, inner authority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, so much of your work is what I would call global, what I would call transformative and bringing such an awareness to what anti-Blackness is. So mm-hmm. I think it would be amazing for for you to share what, if you had to define that, right? Part of what is happening in this podcast is, you know, please say Black, like reinserting, not just the power of Blackness, not just reinserting why that matters, but also speaking against anti-Blackness because we live in an anti-Black mm-hmm. world. And so I'm going to say this and I'm going to go back to the question. Mm-hmm. There is so much policing of Blackness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So describe that for people. How would you do that? What is anti-Blackness? Yeah. And it doesn't need to be a dictionary one. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, it's the religion of America. It's what organizes our entire moral system in America. And I would say globally because of America's reach. It It determines who's sacred and who's profane. It determines what acts are sacred and what acts are profane, what words are sacred and what are profane, who is damned and who is not. And it's that, and so then that shows up in who gets sent to the principal's office at schools, who gets put into, who gets incarcerated, who gets elected president, who gets to be on the Supreme Court. I mean, it has these, these moral judgments have ramifications beyond the church, but it's the religion of America, anti-Blackness. And I would say anti-Blackness is even more so the thread that holds it all together than even white supremacy in the sense that white supremacy only exists because anti-Blackness is such a, is such a profound foundation. It's just so airtight the way it's been constructed, right? That that the whole concept of blackness in the United States from Thomas Jefferson on has been this inferiority. And so it's just so difficult to unpack. And um and that's and that's why it's such it's such a profound and stable um foundation for white supremacy. Because it's got these moral um these moral threads that then lead into the legal with which then lead into the the financial. <laughs> and it's just I mean, it's quite brilliant, actually, if, you know, if you were going to try to dominate another group, this is the best way to do it, because morality has, um, the moral high ground is always the final frontier. And I, and I think, at least for me, you know, again, the, the, the academic charge, right, you, like, you process, lay it out, what's the data, right, all those things. For me, I had to, after Antiana Jefferson, and I mean, I think, the state-sanctioned murders of all types of Black people impacted. Mm-hmm. But I hit a real raw with Atiana Jefferson that didn't happen with Sandra, because even though I can relate, right, and mm-hmm. it was the concept of, like, sitting with her nephew and doing something mm-hmm. simple and playing a video game, mm-hmm. right? Think to myself, like, this conversation around racism is not enough, mm-hmm. right? And so for me, it was like, what am I missing? What what are we not responding to? And mm-hmm. 
our very humanity is questioned. Mm -hmm. And so we can change all these systems. Mm -hmm. If the humanity isn't there, it doesn't matter how you reform a police department or how Mm -hmm. you reform education or how much grant money, you know what I'm saying? And that to me was really that thing that I was like, okay, you know, like the old folks say, now we're cooking with fire or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes way for us to see how something like your book is so intricate to us because, you know, for those of us who kind of grown up, cut our teeth on evangelism, the black Mm -hmm. church, so much of how we understand humanity is from the divine. But if we're not Mm -hmm. divinity, then Mm -hmm. we can ourselves as human. Mm -hmm. This book is so necessary for a lot of reasons. So you tell us that there's like over 450 black Madonnas Oh my gosh, like that was so delicious. <laughs> 2018, you travel to the mountains of France and you visit 40 ancient Black Madonnas. How did that change you? And that probably seems like the answer right now. <laughs> yeah um but- it's so funny I was just I was just journaling about this earlier today um because certainly visiting the Black Madonnas was incredibly transformative to me and I talk about that transformation in my book and these some you know these encounters I think I talk about eight or nine of the encounters in my book and obviously they're like really meaningful and things are coming up from my um you know, when you're face, when you're finally, for me, finally coming face to face where I could actually reach out and touch and cling to and <laughs> hold on to um, these images of these divine images of sacred black women um, that are older than time, really, you know, um, that cha- that changed everything for me. It changed everything for me because I started to believe that I was sacred too. And it kind of goes back to your point of, you know, Black people being raised in church spaces, but there was always a distance between us and God, even if that God was depicted as a Black man, which oftentimes in Black churches, God isn't. God is often depicted as a white. I mean, in my grandfather's church, there was a picture of the bishop who was Black and the next to it, a picture of Jesus who was white, right? And so, that 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 certainly isn't always the case that you even get a black Jesus, but it was always a male Jesus. And there was always um, a shaming of black women that you got that Jezebel spirit or something like that, you know? And so it was very difficult for me to conceive of myself as holy, 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 whole, as in, in my entire self is holy. There's nothing in me that's not holy until I came face to face with these black Madonnas. And they're just so diverse in terms of their skin color, what's going on with their bodies. Some of them are pregnant. Some of them are breastfeeding. Some of them are alone. Some of them have a child with them, the Christ child. Some of them are older. Some of them are gender non-conforming. Some of them are light skin. Some of them are dark skin. I mean, it's just this wide range. Some of them are like, um, some of them look like they work in a field, you know, like are kind of like athletic field. Some of them look like they are, large and voluptuous and impossible to move, just sturdy, you know, and, but none of them are a mammy, none of them are a sapphire, none of them are a Jezebel, 
None of them are a strong black woman. And um, so, yeah, so, but one of the things I was reflecting on in my journal today was just that certainly encountering these images was so powerful for me, but really writing the book is what changed my life because that, that forced me to put into practice the things that I had encountered because I was sitting there writing about my body. And then I'm like, you know what? I need to put this chapter aside for a few months and actually work on my body image some more so that I could put right with integrity. Um, and so there were a lot of things. I mean, there are so many things that came up through the process of writing the book and processing and applying the information that I acquired on my pilgrimage. So even though I love pilgrimages and I want to take Black women on pilgrimages to some of these Black Madonnas, that's just the beginning. And there was a sense that I knew that at the end of my pilgrimage, you know, five, 450, 400 miles, I knew, okay, I learned all this stuff. Now I actually have to go and live it. <laughs> Back in my context in America, I'm not just out in the mountains by myself. You know, it's like, I have to actually go back and I have to deal with my situation at Duke. I have to go back and actually deal with my relationship. I have to go back and actually deal with my relationship to capitalism and my reliance on it. I have to deal with my fear. I have to deal with the fact that there's still parts of me that don't believe that I'm sacred as is, that still need work, you know? And so that was the real process. And a lot of that came out in the year and a half that I spent writing the book, where there was also a pandemic and there were so many other things going on too, of course, Brianna Taylor, George Floyd, everyone. I mean, one, I just want to say, put me on the list of Black women who are going wherever <laughs> Two, this book really can open people wide open and you take with that what it is, right? And then figure out how to like embody the things. That's that's what I'm hearing, like figuring out how to embody the things. When you yeah. say as a black woman, and I mean, all, uh, I don't, laughing, crying, all the things you can do when you read a book is what's happening. So like, <laughs> that's how it felt writing it. Yeah. Fugitive my entire life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that I stopped. I was like, okay, I got it. You know, mm -hmm. and it made me think of the last conference I went to, the last public conference I went to before COVID. And it was an all black women's panel. And I asked the question to one of the attendees. I said, the panelists, I said, where is the safest place for a Black woman? Mm -hmm. And that is what that line made me think of. As mm -hmm. a Black woman, white male God's world, I've been a fugitive my entire life. Where is the safest place for a Black woman, Christina? For me, I found it in her arms, at her feet, at her table. Um, so it's a, to me, it's a mystical place. Um, it's a, and that, and that's what I think is so powerful about this journey. And I think really the journey of so many Black women who've come before me is that Black women be knowing. We know that what is on the surface is not what's really true. We can access a deeper truth and a deeper love and a deeper power. And I think for the, the place where I have found safety and security and love and assurance is in within the sacred black feminine and that's that's part of why um i've been on the spiritual journey i think it's possible to create spaces that are in alignment with the sacred black feminine but humans are always going to be human and um, even though being on this journey has introduced me to black women who have so much more self-actualization and healing that they've had access to 
And so, you know, usually when wrongs have been committed, there are amends are made, people have real conversations, you know, that kind of stuff, but it's still really messy because we all have trauma. And if, if it's like me, it's very complex childhood trauma that takes its, it, you know, I'll probably be untangling it my whole life, you know, and, and that's okay. That's okay. So yeah, this isn't a world that's particularly safe for Black women tried to curate spaces I can't say they're 100% safe so I've tried to curate spaces that definitely center black women and prioritize the wellness of black women but there's always either there's always either a Karen an actual Karen or there's a black girl in there with an internalized Karen so it's like even if you say this is only going to be for black women or people who identify as black women or people you know that still doesn't necessarily make it safe because of what, you know, your point that white supremacy is still alive and well, even if there are no white people around. But at the foot of the sacred black feminine with, with a community agreement that we're all sacred, I think we can actually be with that reality with some spaciousness as in knowing we don't have to fix it and we don't have to heal it. Um, and that's one of the things that, that was powerful for me about experience going on my pilgrimage is realizing if God is a black woman, I don't have to be God. I don't have to fix everything. I don't have to heal everything. I don't have to create the perfect space. I don't have to promise everybody this is going to be a safe space. I can actually just breathe and be a human and trust that someone else who's trustworthy and reliable and amazing has got them. I don't have to have, I can be regular human. I don't have to be superhuman, you know? And so I can just say, these are the guidelines for the community. This is what our hopes and our intentions are. And good luck with that. You know, like if, if, an, if an issue comes up, we'll deal with it. But yeah. That's so rich. For what it's worth, the, the, the panelist told me in her mind, and that was a transformative moment for me. Mm, a lot of- yeah, that's beautiful too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people might've been like, wow, that's very, you know, nihilistic, mm-hmm. but it's like I understood the assignment. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and mm-hmm. for a lot of us, those woundings keep mm-hmm. us again, like fragmented. Right. I, I'm thinking about as I was reading the book, I was thinking about people who identify as black and Christian who who are living with the impact of the depiction of white male God, the sore character. Right. What do you think? Like, I was thinking about what some of those impacts are in our community. But what do you think are some of the the long lasting impacts have been? Because like you said, your I think you said your grandfather's church, the be- bishop, the white, you know, the white Christ. Like how mm-hmm. has that led us to see that yeah. for generation to generation? God, that yeah. is separate. What do you think has been the impacts of that? Yeah. Oh my gosh! I mean, I would you know legalism, like legalistic theology that shames people, um, which I think is rampant in black churches a lot, particularly towards women. You know, like it's a gendered shaming, um, LGBTQ exclusion, of course. Um, I'd also say like our just um, uh, the the hierarchy in the Black Church. You know, so like um, this. I think one of the things about knowing that we're all sacred and sort of the way of the divine feminine is that everybody gets to be their own priest. You don't need someone to approve of you or kind of be the mediator between you and the divine. And that's very empowering, but it's also, it's disempowering to the preacher, the pastor, the bishop, whoever is amassing power and wealth and Rolls Royces and all the things. Um, so I think that, 
Exactly. I saw that. That's just shenanigans. Yeah. Being able to spit on people. Exactly. Right. Um, And then like, I also would say the disconnect from mysticism, from this like actual conjuring that can happen in collective spiritual spaces. You know, it's kind of this more, one of my colleagues at Duke, one of my black church colleagues at Duke um, said that a lot of black folks in the Durham, North Carolina area where Duke was kind of go to church out of muscle memory. So just this lack of magic happening. It's just rote. We're just here because this is what you do. But that's all from that white God, right? That, that's not, that doesn't ever show up to do anything other than shame us. So of course we don't go with any expectation that spirit might actually move or do something interesting amongst us. Um, and then the disconnect from nature. I mean, our ancestors' spirituality was so connected to nature. And because we have this off-planet Father Sky God who doesn't think at all. I mean, Black, Black people and Black church folks participate in the denigration of this planet to the extent of just as anybody else, we consume potentially more, you know, um, so that just the capitalistic, so there's like a theology of capitalism in a lot of black church spaces where it's like that prosperity gospel, right? Like you're, you're blessed and highly favored if you're driving the car, if you have the nice suits, if you have the, again, this connection to God such that the, the more holy I am, the more power I have and the further away from the average person in this earth that I am, which the average human being on earth is a woman of color who lives in the global South and lives in poverty and is a constant threat of violence. That is literally the average person on the earth. But what we're learning in our churches is that the further we are from that, the closer we are to God. Yeah, like the young people say, I was this year old or whatever. It was last year when I thought about something, you know, mm. the idea that people went to the Amazon mm. and were like, you people need to be ministered to. Exactly. You have to learn English so you could read the Bible mm. so that you can be in contact with God. Mm. And I'm like, in mm. the Amazon where the trees speak to each other? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Right? And people who are sitting and seeing and hearing, yeah. we've been... It's that those people, the people who are close to the sun, are the people yeah. who have it wrong. Yeah, yeah, I well, agree. I'm sitting here building fun, you know, <laughs> and I've been paying on it for 20 years. So we can build a bigger empire. You're right. Imagination is theology, and we can only believe what we can imagine. What should we be collectively imagining right now? That God is a Black woman. That God is a Black woman walking down the street towards you and... I have to actually reckon with her body, her black body, and the fact that it is sacred and what that means for me and for all of society. (laughs) I think there's this richness in the ways that you are. I mean, you're not the only one, but there are all these people that you're mentoring, Christina, that you probably don't even realize it, you know? Mm. You know? But I get this book. And I got to tell you, like, it cracked me right open. And Mm -hmm. also, again, the language for what I'm experiencing right now, right? Mm -hmm. So if there was a target audience, and I don't know if you have a demographic, but as a Black woman. Black women. Black women. (laughs) But who's made a decision to divest from whiteness, who's made a decision to, like, no longer normalize the violence of empire, right? And... Mm -hmm negotiating all the costs that come with that, right? Mm-hmm. And the grief that comes with that and the process that comes with that. I'm like, how is it possible? And then of course I'm like, of course God, yeah, this is okay. I 
thanks Christina for giving me more language to negotiate what am I experiencing right now, you know? Mm. And so I just wanted to, to, to say that mm. that's so important that you do give that language in this book that so many people probably didn't think they needed until they start reading, you know? Thank you so much for giving us the gift of you and all the things that would come of it. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this time. It's been so wonderful to connect with you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Please Say Black podcast. And I am so excited to be your host, Joaquina Reed. I hope today's episode really connected to you in a deep way. And I want to encourage you to check out the episode notes. You can find out more information about me, how you can support our podcast, and of course, find out more information about our dope guests. Lastly, make sure you follow us over at Instagram at Please Say Black. I want to leave you with this blessing from our tremendous ancestor, Malcolm X, that says, I pray that God bless you in everything you do. I pray that you will grow intellectually so that you can understand the problems of the world and where you fit into it, into that world picture. And I pray that all the fear that has ever been in your heart will be taken out. So stay black, stay black, and be blessed. Now, if you don't mind, I would like to get a little rest now. Catch y'all next time.